Hi, welcome to episode 2 of Exploring Astrophysics with me, Vikram Bamri. This week, I will be speaking to Gladys Veles Caicedo, who is a technical instructor at the Department of Physics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She also did high-energy particle astrophysics at various labs around the world, such as NASA's Fermi Telescope. How did you get into the field of astrophysics? So I started astrophysics, really, I, I think, as far as I can remember, I have always wanted to, to learn more about astrophysics. I remember that I first committed very seriously to, do, to studying astrophysics around the seventh grade. And, you know, as a young child, I, my first love was always books and reading. I love, I love literature. I love to, to, you know, just read any, any kind of book. So academic study was always a big part of my life. And I fell in love with different types of cultures and exploring new things. And it was in middle school in the seventh grade when one of my teachers, she actually was a teacher of biology, brought in a magazine from Astronomy Magazine, and it was an article on superstring theory. So at the time, this was uh, fairly, it, it's, it's not a new field. I mean, it was, you know, ever since the 90s, you have theories in, in superstring theory and, and beforehand. But it was really picking up steam in the, in the mid-2000s. And around the same time, I had seen on our local news station, like a Spanish, a Spanish news station, a panel of physicists from MIT that was, were speaking on the same subject. And I think that at the time, this was a new development. I, I've never gone back to try to find the article again. But I, I was, remember reading that she made copies for all of her students. Mrs. Marshall, I remember what's her name. And, and I remember reading it and I, I didn't know that people actually did this for a living, like, you know, studied in, you know, physical properties and, you know, develop theories trying to explain phenomena that we observe or possibly that we cannot observe and it's just purely imagined and, and creative, such as superstring theory or, or, you know, more complex theories that are, that are purely theoretical at this point. And I think that really cemented my like dedication to the field. So I remember from you know seventh grade onwards, I tried to to explore as much as I could. And remember this this was I guess mid two thousands and and I want to say like two thousand five two thousand six. Back then, I mean I think YouTube had just launched two thousand five or two thousand six. So there weren't any of the resources available that that are available today, you know, like so much dissemination of, of information and so much connectivity. So we really had to go out, you know, to the public library with your library card. And, and we had something called uh, the Dewey Decimal System, which is a cabinet of cards. I don't know if you, if, if you have those where you're from, but you'd essentially to look up a book you would have to open this big cabinet and know at least the author or the genre. And, you know, they're divided by the name and what they have to deal with. But you pick out a card and it tells you the number where that book should be. So you have to go and walk to the, to the big book cases and, and try to find your book. And sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. But this was very nice because 
when you're in a specific section like science, you can run into many other authors that you might not have known. So instead of it being like a New York Times bestseller, you know, you have a collection of similar type subjects in that area. So I remember just being there and, and you know, this was when I, I found books by Brian Greene and Stephen Hawking. And I think that just that sense of, of wonder and that sense of openness and that sp- sense of spaciousness really made me, made me know that this was something that I wanted to pursue. So, yeah, I think not to be too mystical about it or anything, but, you know, there's something very, like, breathtaking when you look at the night sky and, and there's just, like, this sense of, of peace and that, that comes over you and this sense of wholeness or oneness. And then, you know, academically, you have to make sure that all of those things align. You know, you have to do your work, you have to be dedicated and, and be persistent, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great to see that it was from such a young age that you developed a passion for the subject. Mm-hmm. So, so what exactly do you do currently? What is your work in the field? Yeah, so full time, I'm a technical instructor of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is just MIT and in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I've been there since, since I finished at Columbia in 2017. So, so I started that, that fall of 2017. And what we do is we, basically I'm a teacher. So I teach undergraduates and in, in physics. So not in astrophysics. Because our, our, if you're a student at MIT, it's an engineering school. So most of the professions that we offer are engineering. Uh, we do have a physics major. So that's my department, course eight. Almost all students, when their first semester, they have to take classical mechanics. Mm-hmm. unless they, they test out of it. And also you have to take electricity and magnetism. So those two courses. I started teaching when I started MIT. Those were the ones that we were teaching. And we have at MIT is a very dynamic form of, of teaching where we have a system called technology-enabled active learning. And it's not so much like a lecture. We do have lecture courses but it is more like uh, interactive in the classroom. We have anywhere from 50 to 100 students per class and they're grouped together. And we lecture in about 20 minute segments. The goal is never to speak for more than 30 minutes at a time and then allow the students to work together under supervision to collaborate and problem solve because a very big part of engineering is being able to to work together to solve solutions and being able to use one another's background to amplify and support each other's ideas, especially when you know, your first year in, in college can, can feel a little bit isolating. You have to create a good community where you feel supported. And I think MIT tries, tries to do that a lot. So we have problem solving, we have experiments in the classroom. We don't have a, a introductory experimental laboratory work course, which is something that myself and and other people have been trying right now to develop. So that's also part of my work. You know, for first two years, I was also integrating a lot of interdepartmental collaborations with physics. Because physics is required at MIT, some other departments feel like students don't have the ability to explore other, other disciplines. So usually my, my goal is to be able to integrate as much 
from different disciplines as we can in the classroom and that goes hand in hand with curriculum development and you know trying to bridge that gap and show that physics can be uh, used to explain so much not just in in the physical discipline even if you're any type of engineering so that was first three years and then now I'm I'm a technical some sales technical instructor but I've moved to junior lab so junior lab is called experimental physics and this is a very proper introduction to experimental research and graduate level work in in doing experimentation so it's for junior so it's in your third year physics majors and we have a selection of Nobel Prize winning experiments such as you know the photoelectric effect or relativistic dynamics we even have NMR which is not Nobel Prize winning but nuclear magnetic resonance we have quantum information processing now we have very classical experiments such as Rutherford scattering of the Coulomb potential and around an atomic nucleus so essentially for in junior lab it's it's the first introduction that students get to professional development a lot it's more to help students as physicists feel like they are part of the physics profession and feel like they can see their professors as colleagues and that they have the background necessary to be able to to perform at a really high level in a graduate research team and so this is their first introduction and this semester has been a bit different because as I mentioned I teach experimental physics so I work with juniors and seniors at MIT in, in their third and fourth year of their undergraduate. And right now our campus is, is not open, right? So we have these very hands-on, I mean, fully hands-on experiments uh, that have to be operated remotely because the students are the ones that have to be taking the data and analyzing their data on an experiment they've never seen in person before. So what I've been trying to do, I've been, that has occupied most of my time this semester, I guess since uh, August, is making sure or trying to remotely operate a lot of our different experiments. We have like optical trapping right now, but we can have that completely uh, virtual, so a, a complete simulation. So optical tweezers won the Nobel Prize, I believe, in 2019, not this year, but last one or two years ago. So that's a simulation, but then we have other ones, as I mentioned, Rutherford scattering, where I'm working right now to attach, you know, motors and actuators that will actually be able to do robotically what, you know, humans would do with their hands. It is difficult being able to, to be available for, for everybody in the ways that they need us. But we've been doing our best. I mean, it, it's been a success so far. You know, there, it could have been a bigger success, but I think that, I think we're happy with what we've been able to accomplish so far. Great. And so you, you seem to have been teaching for a while now at MIT. Did, have you been teaching for like, have you done anything previous to teaching after university or has it mainly been teaching? Mm. No, I think mostly I've been, mostly I've been teaching. Yeah. So from university, I went to MIT and, and I've been teaching. And I do do a, like other types of outreach and, and, but I think my main profession is, is certainly teaching and being involved in the department and being able to support other research groups. But I have not 
done my own research in a very long time. And I think that right now I'm very, I've always been passionate about teaching and I've always wanted to share physics and, and being able to kind of transfer that to, to other students. So that's really, I think, where my passion lies and where I feel drawn to. You know, I have been encouraged a lot to be able to get more into research. But I think right now, with the balance between my professional life and my personal life, there's, you know, I'm already, I'm already pretty full. And so I'd have to make, you know, some sacrifices. I'd have to make some changes in order to, to reshift my focus. But I think for now, I, I definitely enjoy what I've been doing. And I think the moment where I, when I feel like I'm not necessarily learning and where I feel like I've you know, I don't have anything more to learn, then I definitely try to realign my focus. But I think for now, I, I am happy with what, what I've been doing. Great. And so you mentioned doing some outreach. So mm -hmm. as, as well as MIT, which I'm sure takes up a lot of your time, what sort of outreach have you been doing? So we try to do a lot of outreach in our community. So in Cambridge, so our, our different groups at MIT we try to collaborate in different science festivals and be able to to share science in a more you know open way so being able to work with the museum of science or doing science weekend events or doing being part of the cambridge science festival and we also sometimes invite whenever other departments maybe have have events on MIT's campus we try to to do some physics demonstrations for them we also like to do events for prospective students so I think that's something that's nice I also often teach for a program that we have at MIT which is called educational studies program or ESP and they have different types of of outreach where high school students can come onto campus and take take lessons um, on many different types of, of subjects. And so I'm gonna ask you a bit of an open-ended question, but mm -hmm. so in the field of astrophysics, what kind of developments or discoveries do you think we're gonna see in the next five years? Like in astrophysics, so in astrophysics in particular, especially in the next five years, so, I, so I'll say that in, in the main focus of MIT right now is being able to have, we have a very strong condensed matter experimentation and theory group and where things are tending towards, and this applies both to uh, physics and astrophysics in terms of data analysis and types of technologies that will allow us to probe you know, further levels of, of information about our physical environment. So the advances basically in the past, in the past, decade, two decades, we have to, in physics as a whole and, and in, in like electronics, the field of optoelectronics and photonics has really enabled the creation of new types of materials that are very different than the ones that we have used so far to create anything from telescopes to computers. And so nanostructured materials that can be applied to create new types of technology is, is a really big part of MIT right now. So being able to explore unique properties of materials that can apply to anything from 
biotechnology to making new communication satellites is is a really big focus right now but but fundamentally what MIT does is they try to explore like this very diverse behavior by probing you know so photonics is the interaction of of light and matter interactions and that system so um, trying to create more efficient energy transfer more efficient materials high efficiency LEDs or things that will be solar powered solar cells creating very efficient solar cells and so MIT's focus in the physics department is condensed matter physics and this goes you know nanophotonics quantum electronic transport and optoelectronics in different types of materials understanding their superconductivity and all of these properties affect the way they're designed to affect the properties of photons in the same way that you would be able to see semiconductors affecting the properties of electronics the way that we create modern computers today. So, so the, the, the purpose of MIT really is, is to design the, the new generation of, of quantum computers. And this, you know, when we say quantum computer, that might sound like very grandiose, but the fundamentals here are that you must understand these new dimensions about the ability to control and, and mold and, and guide light with waveguides and, and all these different types of, of advanced optical and electronic properties and new technologies that can emerge from understanding the the phenomena and the interactions both electronic magnetic photonic of, of this is like the interact the the intersection of solid state physics nanotechnology and, and all of that and the reason why i mentioned that in, in the vein of of also astrophysics is because a lot of these technologies that are being developed in 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 photonics can be used for, for example, optical artificial neural networks. So deep, so this has to do with deep learning and being able to use essentially optical electronic systems in order to create network networks of, of algorithms using nanophotonic circuits. And this is like the control of light. And when you're able to I'm not, this is a very far off goal, but if you're able to create something like this, you're really able to process information, right? The way that computers learn, process information efficiently and understand how to handle large data sets is gonna become a lot, a lot quicker. Essentially, this would be a direct application, artificial neural networks and deep learning to help advance engineering, doing reverse engineering, so that's a really big thing right now. And this is important because in astrophysics, you have a collection of so much information. And the actual job of an astrophysicist is not so much sitting at a telescope. You know, observational astronomy as a field is, you know, you go to a telescope and you collect information, but you don't just do that to collect information. You do that to understand the data. But when you have so much, so much data, especially if you think about what you get from a particle collider, as something like at CERN or the Large Hadron Collider, you have so much information and being able to actually parse that data and, and get useful relationships from that information is really important. So, <clears throat> so being able to possibly create the, the necessary tools that will make this easier, it applies not only to physics, 
when you're using like when you're trying to create technologies that will process faster such as you know quantum quantum technologies but this can be applied to to, to other types of data sets so so that's an application of both physics and astrophysics i would say that in astrophysics what has really been on the forefront you know since 2015 since 2017 when <clears throat> when the LIGO won the Nobel Prize in physics, <clears throat> which was, so Rainer Weiss is one of our professors here at MIT, and, you know, he, he started developing this interferometer, which is LIGO Laser Interferometer Gravitational Waves Observatory here at MIT, and that has led to an open field of multi-messenger astrophysics and astronomy, where you can now be able to image the you know, image what is out there, image the universe in more than one type of, of information transfer. So you're looking at, I remember from, from our class, I was telling you the, up until very recently, the only way we could ever communicate with the universe was electromagnetically. You know, after 2015, our first detection, you can now image the universe also in gravitational waves. So being able to to superimpose this data and create a map and an imaging of the universe, not only electromagnetically, but also in, in gravity waves, provides a different view of the standard view we've, we've seen of the universe, <clears throat> right? It creates more texture, it creates a much wider, a much more finer picture of what's actually out there. So currently, you know, at, at MIT, a big, at MIT astrophysics, you know, in the astrophysics lab, you know, advanced LIGO has been working and now being able to make LIGO even more, more precise by reducing quantum noise. That's one of the biggest things that Matt Evans right now is doing, Nergis, who is our department head and also the director of, of LIGO right now. They, they are like <clears throat> quantum astrophysicists. So they're applying these quantum methods <clears throat> to be able to make even more precise measurements. So one of the greatest triumphs of LIGO and probably why it won the Nobel Prize was yes, because of the detection of gravitational waves, but more so because of the amount of precision of this type <clears throat> of detection. This is extremely sensitive detection and the amount of work that you needed to put in to make that kind of very, very sensitive detection is, is it's a lot of work. So this has to do with macroscopic quantum measurements, basically. And then another thing also you, you may have seen, our colloquium this week was by Sarah Seeger. So <clears throat> Sarah, Professor Seeger is, you may have read recently that phosphine was detected <clears throat> in the atmosphere of Venus. And <clears throat> that could lead to possible, you know, possible signals of, of life on Venus. So I think that one of the very big, you know, aim of astrophysics at MIT right now is also exploring not only our solar system, but extrasolar planets. So Professor Seeger, she was looking at many different types of exoplanets, and then specifically what they were explaining in the colloquium this week was the amount of actual chemistry that you need to ca categorize and catalog is astounding. So, you, so what, what Sarah Seeger's team Right now, and they were the the team that announced the recent detection of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. 
they have to categorize all of the actual molecules that life produces, the type of compounds of life, you know, that signals the existence of life and make it like this big catalog and, and see how, what kind of patterns come out of that, what overlaps and what doesn't. This leads to what is the atmosphere composition, the interior structure of exoplanets. And again, this is a lot, a lot of data. In also 2018, I believe TESS was launched probably like April of, of 2018. So TESS is the transiting exoplanets solar, I forget, TESS is transiting exoplanet satellite, survey satellite maybe. And so what it is, is it tries to also cut, uh, find new exoplanets, you know, an exoplanet is a planet outside of our own solar system that can possibly, you know, we just want to study them. Whether they harbor life or not, you know, that's a very big question. But first is just to get a possible detection, you know, how can we classify them? Can we look at the transits, the <clears throat> direct imaging, which is very difficult and has just been done recently, direct imaging, because they're so, you know, they're so small. If it's, if it's hard to find, look at even just our solar system, Imagine trying to detect something far outside of our own solar system. So yeah, this is, this is I feel like, where experimentally astrophysics at MIT is right now. And just to round that out, the, one of the standouts, you know, the, you know, people also in our department are the theoretical astrophysicists. Very difficult work, but MIT has one of the, 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 the strongest theoretical astrophysics, theoretical physics departments, you know, anywhere. And, and wh where this mostly shines is, is quantum field theory in astrophysics, right? Combining quantum mechanics and gravity. One of the greatest, you know, endeavors that anybody can choose to dedicate their life to. I mean, Albert Einstein, you know, spent the latter half of his life trying to unify these things and unfortunately was not successful. This is like string theory. You know, ADS-CFT correspondence is anti-de-sitter space conformal field theory correspondence, which is a theory of quantum gravity. And so, so you know, there's equal parts of, of anything experimental, theoretical, really driving our understanding of, of the universe right now, whether it's directly imaging black holes or having gravitational wave observatories such as LIGO or, you know, understanding theories about the quantum mechanical parts of cosmology and black holes, two-dimensional black holes, holography, all of that is being done at MIT. So I think in the next five years, there's going to be a lot of work done in, in quantum, in, 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 you know, quantum physics, wh whether that applies to materials, condensed matter um, experimentation, or even theoretical astrophysics. Okay, great. That, so from what I understand, there seems to be a lot of emphasis around data collection and this sort of Absolutely. between yeah. quantum theory and like, well, the big and the small, there seems to be this unification that's needed. So hopefully in the next five years, when I, I can join the uh, search for everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so thank you very much uh, for speaking to me. I had a great time. I learned a lot. Um, I hope you had a good time speaking as well. Yeah, I did. Of course. Thank you.